this week on the Backtable Podcast. The irony here is that folks who suffer from this are very, very uh, highly productive, right? They do great because they push themselves so hard. They're so internally driven to prove themselves constantly. And so people will look at somebody suffering from imposter syndrome, which is a purely internal feeling, uh, and say, oh, that person is very successful. They're doing great. You know, they're wonderful at writing papers and they get grants or they're terrific clinicians, you name it. And yet that person is really struggling to do that. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and spread the word. Reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host, recording from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm honored to welcome our guest, Dr. Bob Ryu, Chair of Radiology at the University of Southern California. Dr. Ryu joined me for one of our earliest episodes on IVC filter retrieval when I was a brand new attending just out of fellowship. I encourage our listeners to check that one out. And uh, now that I'm a mature seasoned veteran, I'm thrilled to welcome you back. Thank you for sharing your time and perspective with us again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Great to be back. How's life in Southern California? Uh, fantastic. It's been an a amazing transition. I can't believe it's already been a year since I left the University of Colorado to join USC. It's been uh, terrific so far. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about your department, you know, some of the things you like about it? And for our trainees out there that make up a lot of our listeners, um, could you tell us a bit about the radiology and interventional radiology training program? Sure. We have the best training program in the entire universe, as far <laughs> as I can tell. I heard. <laughs> University of Southern California is my alma mater, uh, and so I know the program very, very well. And I think we have a, a unique advantage over other programs in that uh, I would say the breadth of cases that you see coming out of L.A. County, a safety net hospital, uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And when you mix in Norris Cancer Hospital, obviously, with uh, fairly advanced interventional oncology cases, and then you have the Keck Hospital, typical mix of a tertiary quaternary transplant center uh, and the complex interventions that go with that. I, I think it's a very rigorous program, but we have a, an incredibly cohesive team of, of attendings. So it's a lot of fun to come to work. Uh, so great cases, uh, great people. Those are the two sort of main ingredients to any great training program. And as you told me a little while ago, great weather. Can't beat the weather. Yeah, I don't want to gloat, but but honestly, you can't beat the weather. Yeah, that's what I hear. Would uh, the residents rotate through all of those different facilities? They do, and others as well. You know, the, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles is one of the premier pediatric hospitals in the United States, uh, so our trainees get experience there as well. Uh, and that just further rounds out what I think is a very robust uh, training program for residents and fellows alike. 
It's fantastic. I understand why it's it's the greatest program in the universe. <laughs> we've we've trademarked that, by the way. Yeah, so. you should. I mean, I, I think there there's definitely room for that. So today we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome, and you know, my, my first question for you is, is is why is this something that you wanted to come on and talk about? Why does it matter to you? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So when I started as chair, probably the uh, first thing and and smartest thing that I did was uh, engage with an executive coach, and that'll make sense in a in a minute here. But I, I want to tell the story of my conversation with my coach one day, and I think I was probably going through some of the adjustments. I still do. I'm still going through some of the adjustments that go along with being a new chair, and the insecurities that go along with um, the decision that decision-making process that you go through on a daily basis, you know, there, there's a certain amount of self-examination and quite frankly, self-doubt that comes along with being in that particular role. And uh, we started talking a little bit about imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, and he sent me an article and, and we were kind of reviewing it and talking about it a little bit. And he said, you know, I'm willing to bet that 50% of your residents suffer from this. And he said, if you take the time to talk about it and bring it to light for your trainees, you will be doing them an enormous service. You're putting a name on something that they may be suffering from, and yet they haven't really put their finger on it yet. And, and if you can give them strategies to try to understand that, you know, even if it's only 50% of your residents, I mean, that, that's 20-something people, that's an incredible potential impact you could have. So I, I took him at his word and I started to read up and I started to put a talk together. And the very first thing I thought of was, why would anybody want to listen to me about imposter syndrome? I don't know anything about imposter syndrome. They're going to listen to me for five minutes and, and then say, he doesn't know anything about this. He's, he's making this crap up as he goes along. And so the irony here, obviously, is the fact that I completely fell into imposter syndrome myself as I'm trying to put a talk together about imposter syndrome for our own residents. <laughs> that that kind of nails it. Um, then, of course, Dr. Ryu, what is imposter syndrome? It's a phenomenon where people have pretty deep-seated feelings of inadequacy and, and will say things, you know, very accomplished people who'll say things like, you know, people suspect that I'm a fraud or that it's just a matter of time before they figure out that I'm, I'm not qualified to do this, or I, I'm, I got here by sheer luck. I'm really not good enough to be a part of this team. Um, there must have been a mistake in the admissions office, you know, for, for kids who are in medical school, these sort of really deep-seated feelings of inadequacy. These things were, you know, the, the phenomenon was originally just, I guess it was described back in the 70s by Claire, and she wrote up a test you can take. It's 20 questions. It'll take you a few minutes to find out where you are on the spectrum of imposter syndrome. And I'm willing to bet that the majority of listeners today who are hearing this as we speak uh, probably will score fairly high. I think this is a very common phenomenon in um, medical education. But why in medical education? I mean, you know, your your executive coach said, you would guess he or she would guess fifty percent of of residents were suffering from this. Is that what you see in the general population, or do you think that's higher in medical professionals? You know, I, I'm guessing um, 
It's hard to say about general population. I, I used a very rigorous scientific methodology to try to understand the incidence of imposter syndrome amongst the interventional radiology population. And the scientific methodology I used, you're probably not familiar with, it's called a Twitter poll. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it, you know, read up on it. You'll, it's it's <laughs> It's quite rigorous. Give me um, a few months. So, I, yeah. So, I, I actually did a Twitter poll. And all kidding aside, I used the hashtags IRAD and, and Twitter, TwitIR, really kind of focusing on the IR community. And, you know, I, I just put out the question and I said, it's yes or no. I said, I have at some point in my education slash training slash career experienced imposter syndrome, which is defined as fear of exposure is a fraud, that your success is driven by luck, and you aren't worthy of your position. And if you include my response, which has put us at 277 wow. uh, people responded to the poll, 87% of people said yes. My God. I'm stunned. You know, one, I'm, I'm still trying to grasp this, this level of scientific evidence, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that seems like such a huge number, but at the same time, you know, that fits, you know, I mean, I, I know I personally, uh, I hope I responded to that poll, but if I didn't, I certainly would have been in the yes poll, part of the poll. Um, Aaron uh, Fritz had actually shared an article with me for this podcast to, to help me learn a bit more about it. And it was fascinating. And, and the article quoted um, some stuff from a book written by an expert on the subject. And she describes some of the more common characteristics of people that deal with imposter syndrome. And some of the words that she used, she said perfectionists, experts, people with natural genius, soloists, and supermen and superwomen, which, you know, hello. I mean, we, this is, this is like most of the medical community. Yeah, we kind of check all those boxes, don't we? And when you think about, you know, medical education and the current system of medical education, I mean, we, we do a really good job, I think, of pitting each other against one another. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I'm really glad to see step one turn into a pass-fail exam finally after all these years. I'm afraid that, you know, I think everybody has a certain amount of anxiety about what's going to happen with step two. You know, we, we love objective metrics and, you know, we, we've lived with A's and B's and C pluses and whatever other grades that we get, we are constantly compared. We are constantly, you know, MCAT scores, you name it. This is hardwired into us at this point. And so when people develop early in their careers in these incredibly competitive systems, it's hard. I think I'm not surprised, frankly, I'm a little mortified, but I'm not surprised that 87% of people in a highly competitive specialty have feelings of being imposters because I think, you know, you're sort of a victim of the system in which you've come up through. Bob, it's, it's clearly rampant in medicine and, and certainly we can assume in, in other specialties uh, and other careers, but why does it matter? You know, what, why is it important that we identify it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question and, and sort of gets to the heart of the matter. I mean, we all have these feelings and we can kind of talk about, I, I think there's a spectrum between saying, you know, having a certain amount of self-doubt, right? And, and sort of critically assessing the, the situation and whether or not you have the personal or external resources to be successful in 
you know, completing a task. I, I think that's natural. I think we all do that. I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, we shouldn't all consider that to be imposter syndrome. But I think when it starts to become more chronic, where you're constantly questioning yourself, or when you actually do achieve something, and yet you're not willing to acknowledge the fact that you've actually achieved something, that's where you start to maybe lean more towards imposter type feelings as opposed to just self-doubt. Now, I tend to think of this as self-doubt is really how you think, whereas imposter syndrome is how you feel. And that's sort of where it becomes a bigger issue. How do you feel about yourself as a healthcare professional, hopefully a burgeoning expert, you know, that that can really take its toll. Over time, people can have really pretty bad generalized anxiety. They can become depressed. Uh, and it's not hard to imagine where, you know, it eventually can contribute to burnout, where yeah. people just lose their desire to do the thing that they've wanted to do all their life, which is really pretty tragic. And so the goal here, I think, is to have people recognize what it is and try to develop strategies that will mitigate it. Yeah, I think I did actually read a study of actual real data on it, um, you know, that had associated uh, imposter syndrome with burnout, which, you know, obviously is another big topic right now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the irony here is that folks who suffer from this are very, very uh, highly productive, right? They do great because they push themselves so hard. They're so internally driven to prove themselves constantly. And so people will look at somebody suffering from imposter syndrome, which is a purely internal feeling, uh, and say, oh, that person is very successful. They're doing great. You know, they're wonderful at writing papers and they get grants or they're terrific clinicians, you name it. And yet that person is really struggling to do that. You know, we kind of talked about this a little bit, Mike, I'll, I'll bring it up with you about the podcast. I know the feeling of making a podcast and then, you know, feeling like, oh, this is good. And then the anxiety sets in that you have to do the next one even better and, and how, you know, how nervous that can make you. And, and it can fill you with a certain amount of dread that, that, oh man, this next one, I, I've got to get it right. And to do hundreds of podcasts, like what you guys have done, you know, that, that's a, it's quite an achievement, but to keep going, you know, I, I can understand the anxiety you must feel around that. How, how do you, you know, let me ask you, how, how do you, how do you cope with that? Well, uh, I still, to this day, on some level, dread every one of them. You know, I don't want to say I didn't want to talk to you, but I've been nervous about it all week because for each one, you know, we, we, we've made, you know, somewhere between 150 and 130 of these with each one, I, I still feel like we're kind of a sham sometimes. And, uh, I feel like before this one, I was like, I don't have any business interviewing him on this podcast on this or any other topic. And, uh, you know, and I, I still feel the same way I felt before I interviewed you for the first one. You know, the the way I get through it is I, I spend as much time as I can prepping for it so I, I don't look like a fraud. But also, you know, I've already committed to doing this, and so I'm not going to back out. But they're still tough. And uh, even though we've made so many of these, and 
have finally come to terms with the fact that, you know, we've got a useful product that, you know, people really get a lot from. I still am, am nervous to ask anybody to do one and certainly people that, that trained me. But I don't have a good coping mechanism is the short answer to your question. I just try to make it the best that I can. So your story is the same as mine. You know, you're nervous to make a podcast about something that you're going to talk about and people are going to figure out that, oh, he doesn't know anything about this, right? That's <laughs> the same anxiety I had about putting a talk together about the imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to talk about this? No, no one's going to listen to me. I'm not an authority. And yet here we are. And so I'd tell you that, you know, this will go, I think, closer to the end of the podcast. Maybe I have a, a story I can share that I think probably puts this in a little bit better perspective. But for you, I would say, and this is probably good advice for anybody, is every once in a while you have to step back and you have to look at not the individual achievement that each podcast is, but rather the sum of the, the body of work and get out of the granular and look at the bigger picture. And that's pretty impressive. I mean, I don't care how you slice it. To do as many as you guys have done, that is an impressive body of work that will be here for a long, long time that lots and lots of people are going to benefit from. You're helping a ton of people. I think that's amazing. Thank you. It, it has taken a lot of work and a lot of effort. And, you know, one of these days, somebody is going to find out that I'm a fraud. But until then, we're going to keep making these. <laughs> Yeah, I don't uh, think so. <laughs> Bob, so, you know, another thing that comes from this is um, this happens to so many different people in medicine. And and one of the things I wonder is, you know, does imposter syndrome, does it depend more on the individual personality or, or does workplace play a factor? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a little bit of both. This was originally described by Claire and, and Imes, I think, were their names. They published it back in the 70s. And they were really looking at women high achieving women, quote unquote, lots of women who had been very successful in business, had PhDs, advanced degrees, and that's how they originally described imposter phenomenon. But, you know, while it was, I think, sort of maybe more defined on gender lines in that particular time, you know, the 70s was a time of social upheaval, uh, women's rights and equality and, and, um, coming out of the 60s and so many different things that were happening at that particular time. And women seem to be a bit more under the microscope as it related to sure. this phenomenon. But it's certainly come to pass that it seems to be probably equally distributed amongst gender. There's no question, I mean, in my mind, it definitely is more common in healthcare. There are lots of studies looking at different sorts of uh, demographics, different types of students, different types of degree programs, et cetera, et cetera. I just feel like it's um, it's probably a lot more common than we think. And again, that's that's the value of talking about this, that somebody might recognize it. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit, you know, just talking about normal self-doubt as, as still, I still consider myself an, an early career physician. And as an early career physician, some of these feelings are, are like a daily occurrence, you know, uh, questioning what you're doing, you know, rethinking previous decisions. And I do think it's it's hard sometimes to kind of distinguish the good from the bad. But, it, you know, I think, as you said, is when it goes from being, you know, kind of a, an action to a feeling. And that that's when it kind of gets more on the pathologic side, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, I, I think, Again, the self-doubt that you have, the sort of critical thinking that you may have around any particular situation, 
you know, again, I, I sort of view that as normal. Uh, okay. I think we all go through that. I, I just think it's when you start feeling that dread or that you are, that, that what you did was luck or somehow somebody made a mistake somewhere and you ended up, you know, or you flip that microcatheter into a 4B branch to get a tumor and you're like, man, that was so lucky. Like I, I never get that branch again. Right. Right. Um, that's when it starts to, you start to self-sabotage a little bit, I okay. think, uh, and, and how you feel about yourself. And that's where it starts to become a little bit of a problem. Again, I sort of see self-doubt as thinking and imposter syndrome is how you feel. Yeah, that's a that's a good example of selecting a really difficult origin. I, I think I probably said that twice this week. It's like, whew, I got lucky to hit that. Obviously, this is a problem. Is, is there anything that you can really do about it aside from being aware of it, you know, to prevent it? Yeah. Um, so there are the dysfunctional things that we do. We'll avoid it. Like, let's say you're about to do a podcast on some obscure topic and you just push it off and say, Hey, you know what, guys are going to have to delay this. I just can't do it right now. You may sort of deny that you have any of this or, or you distract yourself away from it. Or finally, you know, in the worst case scenario, you do kind of self-sabotage to fail to prove to yourself that you are a failure. Those are all obviously sort of dysfunctional strategies yeah. around how people deal with it. I, I think there are better ones. And, and again, you know, it's not like we, you can't, I can't look at you and say, oh yeah, Mike, you suffer from imposter syndrome, right? There, there's no manifestation of it. In fact, you're an incredibly successful person. You've done this podcast, you're a practitioner, you take care of patients, you do a great job. No one would look at you and say, oh yeah, that guy's filled with, he's filled with anxiety and, and, and tending towards burning out. And we won't know that. Why? Because right. Again, people with imposter syndrome tend to be very successful. So what are the strategies that we can, as individuals, start to use in order to cope with these feelings? And the first one goes back to what I said at the very beginning of this podcast. An executive coach was a tremendous benefit to me to provide me with an external perspective, kind of like what I did to you thinking about your podcasts right? Like, let's just take a different view of it. You're stuck in the, the granular day-to-day -day aspect of making a podcast. I'm not. I get to look at your body of work. Well, an executive coach for me does the same thing. He doesn't get caught up in my day-to-day -day decisions, but he's really kind of looking at it on a sort of grander scale, so to speak, or from 30,000 feet or whatever other cliche you want to use. But that perspective is critical. You need it. You need to get outside your head. Ideally, somebody from outside of medicine, yeah. right? Here's a great example. Let's, let's talk about step one, right? And somebody takes step one and they score 225, which you know is a little bit below the mean. And they're devastated, right? They feel like you know, their hopes for landing into a competitive specialty uh, have effectively evaporated. Yeah. But, but you have to stop for a second and you need that person from outside of medicine to look at this and sort of square you up a little bit and say, okay, yeah. hold on. You know, you got through college, you got into a super competitive medical school. You're now getting into like fractions of a Senate, you know, of a, of a percentile of the sorts of people that you're competing with. And you're going to beat yourself up because you didn't get to the the mean 
median score, whatever it is, like, just hold on a second, right? Look at the people that you're with. This is an incredible right. group, right? So don't, don't beat yourself up here too badly, right? So you need that every once in a while to kind of get out of your head, I think, that, that sort of outside perspective. For me, and I think you're kind of getting at this a little bit earlier too, the idea of asking for help or acknowledging kind of what your knowledge gaps are, you know, peer learning as opposed to just sort of peer review, I think that's a tremendously beneficial way to be more open to the idea of, you know, of, of failure, frankly, uh, and, and that that's okay, right? That's just, that's why we're human. Um, it's a fundamental part of, of being a doctor and, and being a human being. Being able to take that feedback, I think, you know, every single time you do this, a growth opportunity, it's not easy, but, you know, I, I think it's critical as we sort of, again, fight against this idea that somehow we have to be a superman or superwoman, as the case may be. There are great stories out there about people who've acknowledged like some secret source of anxiety. I forget what company it is, but but it's a big, like it's a Fortune 500 company, and the CEO actually never graduated from college. That's cool. And th this was a very like an incredible source of anxiety, right? And, and yet this person was incredibly successful. Right? They they've done a great job, but right. they're still afraid they're going to somehow it's all going to come crashing down when they discover the, this little secret source <laughs> of this this unknown fact, right? This dark side, right? Bob, will you give me an example of what you mean by peer learning? Yeah, so I'll give all the credit to David Larson at Stanford, who's really done a lot of talking. And there, there are plenty of other people, obviously, across the country who have embraced peer learning. And uh, Linda Larson at the University of Southern California, who's our vice chair of professional development, has really embraced it and is starting to roll it out in our department. But, but the idea is really to get away from the idea of um, peer review, and sort of pointing out where people make mistakes, where it can feel a little, I don't know, like a blood sport, I guess. Yeah. You know, and, and I think IR is really unique in, in that we have such a great culture, I think, around peer learning. I think we've all, I think we've been doing peer learning. Uh, there's just something about interventional radiologists who are, who are, you know, we're just happy to embrace when we make mistakes and to learn from it. And, and more importantly, to help other people learn. Uh, even when it's very painful, you know, and this would be a good question for Eric Keller to sort of talk about that particular, I don't know, quality uh, of interventional radiologists that I think is pretty common uh, that, that we're willing to do that. It just kind of is, is part of our DNA. Uh, it's not for everybody. And we're lucky in that regard. And so IR, I think it's it's okay, but but I think in diagnostic radiology, you know, we again I'll give full credit to David Larson and all the other people nationally who are really pushing towards the idea of peer learning to get away from making people feel bad yeah. about being a human and making a mistake. Bob, what am I missing? Is there anything else that um, that we should talk about about imposter syndrome, like you know how you catch the real imposters? How we catch the real imposters. <laughs> no, what about this topic, you know, did I, did I miss? Uh, you know, I, uh... <laughs> well, well let, let me share one last story with you that Please. I think probably made the biggest impact on me in trying to come up with a good strategy uh, of how to deal with it. Last summer, I was uh, a chair for what maybe a couple of months 
And I was invited to play golf with a few friends and we're out. It's a beautiful day, enjoying it. And um, two of the guys I was playing golf with started asking me about my job. And uh, both of them are physicians. And so they really kind of got real granular and started asking me questions that I didn't particularly want to talk about, I think, out on a golf course. And so I started to fidget, I think. And the third person in the group, or fourth person, is a friend of mine who runs a large organization. And I think he started to see my discomfort with the situation. So he kind of stopped and he looked at me and he said, I heard about the new job. Can you help them? And it sort of stopped me in my tracks. It it was sort of, a, he gave me a master class right there. Number one, in emotional intelligence and recognizing kind of what's going on with me at that particular moment. But more than that, you know, he asked me a question. It was very simple. Can you help? And I said, yeah, I can help him. And he looked at me, he said, good. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. And, and I think that if you take that approach to everything that you do, right, the projects that you work on, like Mike, again, you're a great example of this, right? Does your podcast help people? And if the answer is yes, that should ground you and give you a different perspective and the value of what you do and will hopefully alleviate some of the anxiety that you may feel about having to have to get better and better and better. You don't have to get better and better and better. Everything that you do helps. So every once in a while, I'll stop myself and say, am I helping here? And if I can answer yes, I think that kind of helps pull back that veil that imposter syndrome can kind of drop in front of you and you sort of lose perspective a little bit. So that's, that's kind of in my own personal experience and something that, you know, maybe will help other people, you know, maybe come to terms with the fact that they might have a little bit of imposter syndrome themselves. What a remarkably effective and simple tool, you know, can you help? Are you helping? You know, it's, it's like you said, taking a step back, getting away from the granular and, and kind of taking a, a you know, wider scope at, at what you're doing, I, I think that would be very helpful for a lot of people that are dealing with this. You know, we're, we're so used to focusing on individual cases and each specific day. It's nice to get a good reminder of, of what you've been doing and, and what you're doing and the bigger picture kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're surrounded by so many things that tell us that, you know, maybe we should be imposters. Have you heard of the Peter Principle? I haven't. Okay, so the Peter Principle is the idea that you will rise to the level of your incompetence, <laughs> right? And so for me, I was, um, it's the typical academic story, right? I was a junior faculty, I became a fellowship program director, and then I became a residency program director, and then became a section chief and a vice chair, and now I'm a chair. And basically what the Peter Principle says is, I'm going to get to the point where I can't do this. Like I will rise to the level of my incompetence or failure. Now, Peter Principle, a lot of people have heard of, and as actually, I didn't know this, but it was written as a joke. It was kind of like the 60s version of Office Space, if you know that movie, right? The, the whole, well. yeah, the, the whole commentary about cubicle life, right? In a tech company. Well, the Peter Principle was really kind of a similar thing. It was all, it was really written as a bit of a joke. They have stuff like you know, rising to the level of your incompetence was meant as was meant to be satirical and funny. But they had other sorts of 
they had other things they talked about. Percussive sublimation, meaning you got kicked upstairs. In other words, you got promoted <laughs> out of the way. Okay. A lateral arabesque. <laughs> so what they do is they, they give you a longer job title to kind of move you out of the way. Right. So this was all a big joke. And they said things like, you know, if you were really, really incompetent or you were competent, those are both considered disruptive and likely <laughs> to get you fired. This, so again, this is like office space in the right. 1960s. But pe people do talk about the Peter Principle is a real thing uh, and it's not a joke. And that's where I think you get the sense, you know, I think it affects people as they think about themselves. And yeah. you can see where that would promote this idea of imposter syndrome, like, I'm going to fail. Absolutely. Eventually, someone's going to figure it out, and I can't do this job. That's really messed up when you think about it, right? Like, right. why would I ever think that? But right. people you're, do. You're among the, the most accomplished people in, in the entire world, and the most highly trained, you know, probably top 5% most highly trained people on earth. And yet here we are. Yeah, here we are. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Well, that's about all I got, Bob. Anything else that I'm missing? Classic no, imposter I... move of me to, you know, question my content. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I only I, know uh, so much. Well, I, I enjoyed our conversation. I and, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that, again, I think... A lot of people out there feel on a daily basis. Um, yeah. And, you know, we'll ask the question ourselves here, despite our own feelings of self-doubt around whether or not we're qualified to do this podcast. And the question is, you know, do you think you and I are helping people right now? And my answer is yes. Yeah. So I recognize I'm not the world's authority, but but if we can raise a little bit of awareness and start the conversation, hopefully help people think maybe a little bit differently about themselves as they struggle with this, well, you know, what better way to spend my Sunday? I'm with you. Thank you. We appreciate having you on as always, and we're grateful for your time and expertise. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. And um, best of luck with the next one. Thank you. I'll spend the rest of the day uh, wondering how I should have done this better. <laughs> you and me both. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.